Talo Falava, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Goa'u or Koroe Hawkins. Coming up first. He said Indonesia and Papua will never be a harmonious marriage. Voiced Papuans mourn the death of freedom fighter and leader Philip Kama. Also, Port Mosby and Papua New Guinea was going to act as a transit point for more than 600 kilograms of cocaine. Jailing of Australian drug smuggler in PNG raises concerns about the availability of the drug and later on... We're definitely in an age now where the impacts of climate change are being brutally felt by more and more communities. We talk through some of the issues that are likely to be discussed at COP27, which kicks off this weekend in Egypt. West Papuans are in mourning this week for Philip Kama, a Gandhi-like figure of their freedom movement. Philip Kama's body was found on Tuesday on a beach in Jayapura. His family members have publicly announced his death from drowning was due to a tragic diving accident. Often referred to affectionately as Bapa, or father, Philip Kama was respected by minority groups across Indonesia for his integrity and non-violent but unwavering campaign for West Papuan independence. A survivor of the 1998 Biak massacre, Philip Kama was wounded and jailed but later pardoned. He was again arrested and served 11 years of 15-year prison sentence at Abipura for participating in another Morning Star flag-raising ceremony in 2004. Thousands of Papuans have been gathering in Jayapura ahead of his funeral, which will be held upon the arrival of his mother and other family members. Joining me from Jakarta to talk about the life of this extraordinary figure is Human Rights Watch researcher Andreas Hasono. Welcome on Pacific Waves. One thing that set Philip Kama apart from other leaders of the West Papuan Freedom Movement was that he seemed to be respected by people on all sides of the West Papua issue. Why do you think that was? I, I think, first of all, it is because of his personal appearance. He looked like, quote-unquote, scary because he is big. He, is, he doesn't cut his beard. Uh, he vowed he will not cut his beard until Papua is independent. And it is long. And he usually, uh, around his neck, put his beard around his neck. But once you talk to him, you will know that he is humble, he is gentle, he is a, a gentle giant, uh, speak eloquently, speak very articulate, uh, not afraid to express his opinion, uh, including if we disagree. Uh, so I think that is the, the character of him. And of course, he is consistent, he is he's a man of integrity, he... I have never heard anything bad about him regarding, you know, money or woman. He is a loving father. Uh, uh, he had difficulties with with his marriage with his wife, not because of you know, cheating or whatever, but mainly because of his political view. His wife disagree with his political aspiration and how to express that political aspiration, which is, you know, totally understandable. What What was the core of his message? Like you, you've spent, I know it'd be so difficult, but if you could put into words for us his point of view in terms of this West Papuan struggle for self-determination. He liked to say that this is 
a marriage that doesn't work. And it should be a divorce and get, you know, a good settlement. Let's talk about the divorce. Uh, he said Indonesia and Papua will never be a harmonious marriage. Uh, basically, that's the way he described things. Uh, we owe you a lot, Indonesia, of course. But Indonesia also owe us a lot uh, over the last five decades. Let's settle this down. Because if not, it is going to be a burden for the future generation. Indonesia will always be bogged down, uh, uh, you know, human rights accusation against Indonesia because of Papua. But internally, he also know that Papuan organizations are always in in conflict, sometimes deadly, since the 1960s. Uh, he he knows very well the egos of many Papuan leaders inside or outside Papua, <laughs> and he always call on for unity among the multiple factions within the pro-independence Papuan movement, or even the pro-Indonesia movement. There are many factions within Papua. That is his his sorry, that is his sadness when talking about his beloved homeland, his beloved nation. Coming now to the circumstances and the manner of his death, what, what do we know of the passing of Philip Kama? Uh, he is a certified master diver. He liked to dive and he liked to look for fishes with his harpoon. He almost did it every Sunday after his release from the prison while he is, you know, in still in at home in Jaipura if he's not traveling. He was often got trouble inside the sea. October 29, he went to the sea with his brother-in-law and the brother-in-law's son, who is of course his nephew. They are very close. So they went to swim. Uh, on Beshji, his regular place. Uh, but he thought he would like to look for fishes. They were separated. Uh, they went home and he went to the, apparently he went to the sea by himself, which is dangerous for, for a diver not having uh, friends near them. According to his daughter, who had the autopsy, external autopsy, uh, she announced, Andrefina Karmas, she announced in a news conference that her father had died because of uh, accident, because of drowning. And the body was only found on Tuesday, meaning more than 24 hours later. The last time he was seen was Sunday, 6 p.m. And the body was found on Tuesday, 7 a.m. He died because of accident. He died because doing what he loved. The jailing of an Australian drug smuggler in Papua New Guinea has again raised concerns about the availability of hard drugs in the country. David Cutmore was jailed for 18 years after a plane he was flying crashed near Port Moresby more than four years ago with over half a tonne of cocaine on board. 
RNZ Pacific's PNG correspondent Scott Wiley told Don Wiseman the drugs were destined for Australia, but some were earmarked for the local market. He was delivering drugs to Port Moresby, and Port Moresby and Papua New Guinea was going to act as a transit point for more than 600 kilograms of cocaine. Now, he's been, he, he was uh, arrested along with uh, three other people, and the three others are in, still in custody, and Katmore's been sentenced to 18 years by the PNG National Court. Now, he hasn't been sentenced on drug charges because at the time, police felt that if he had been charged using the drug charges that PNG had at the time, it was a 1950s act that would have given him just two years, so he would have gotten off on a on a with a slap on the on the wrist. So they tried charging him under the Customs Act, and the court didn't agree with that, and eventually ended up with uh, a, a charge of money laundering, and that was what he was sentenced for. So he got 18 years for money laundering. A few months later, the PNG Parliament passed a law, stronger penalties against drug smuggling and the use of banned substances. So that event triggered that legislation change in Parliament. How bad is drug use in Papua New Guinea? Cocaine is typically a drug associated with the affluent West. PNG is a poor country. Yes, you know, about... Fifteen years ago, uh, I was reporting on uh, marijuana, and one of the things that we were talking about and discussing with a very small number of police officers and drug from the drug squad was that if, if this is the trend that we're seeing with marijuana, imagine what how Papua New Guinean society would be affected if we had methamphetamine and cocaine come into the come into play. And this was fifteen years ago. Now, when I mentioned it to other people, they weren't really aware of the problem they they weren't able to discuss it at then back then because uh, i guess the awareness wasn't out there because according to many people cocaine and methamphetamine are things that you see on the movies and you know in hollywood but when the cocaine bust uh, happened when the plane crashed with 100 uh, 611 kilograms of cocaine uh, people said you know wow we have cocaine in papua new guinea we have users in papua new guinea and it's used as a transit point you know just like what you would see in a movie. So that that surprised people a bit. They, there was a recent bust of a meth lab, a makeshift meth lab in Port Moresby, and that also shocked many people. Police have known about, uh, you know, small quantities of meth being brought in from overseas, particularly by large overseas communities that live in Papua New Guinea. But the, the use of it hasn't been seen to be widespread, as widespread as marijuana, which is illegal in Papua New Guinea. Much of the rest of the world is changing its attitude toward marijuana. There's no sign of that happening in Papua New Guinea. No, no, no. It, it's uh, it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while before attitudes towards marijuana change. I mean, other countries are seeing the benefits of it. Papua New Guinea still has it listed as an illegal substance. And when you mention drugs, the word drugs in communities, the first thing they think about is marijuana. Tell me, Cutmore's half a ton of cocaine, more than half a ton of cocaine, where did he get it from? Flying into Port Moresby, where had he come from? Uh, According to police sources and customs sources, the source of the drugs came from South America. I'm not too sure which country, 
but where the plane was flying from, I'm, I'm not too sure, but the, the source of the drugs from uh, South America, and they ended up in Port Moresby. At the time, the weak drug laws made Papua New Guinea an ideal point of transit. So if somebody brought a large amount of drugs, as, as was the case with Cutmore and his, his mob, if they're caught in Papua New Guinea, they'd probably be out on bail. And if they were actually penalized that, you know, their lawyers would argue a suspended sentence or that the maximum time they'd spend in jail is a year and a half or two years at least. Some of it was going to filter overseas. Yes. It was headed for Australia. The drugs were headed for Australia. Now, a a cake from uh, information I was discussing yesterday with with a few sources, one cake of cocaine in Port Moresby is selling for about 80,000 kina. Now, that's nothing compared to what you would get in Australia. The 27th United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP27, kicks off this weekend in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Delegates from 190 countries, including hundreds of climate activists and 90 heads of state, are expected to attend the two-week conference, which is supposed to see countries make ambitious commitments to address the climate crisis. But despite all of this scientific evidence pointing to a catastrophic climate future under a business-as-usual scenario, the world's largest carbon emitters are still not meeting their commitments under the Paris Climate Agreement to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. India Logan Riley, a senior member of the New Zealand Action Station, has attended past COPs and a member of her organisation will be in Egypt for this year's edition She says bold climate pledges are often made but rarely fulfilled. She spoke with RNZ Pacific reporter Lydia Lewis. So this weekend, world leaders are going to be gathering for COP27. What do you hope is urgently changed and spoken about at this COP27? Yeah, we're definitely in an age now where the impacts of climate change are being brutally felt by more and more communities. And so it's really important at this year's COP that we have countries committing to meaningful action on climate change rather than just um, soft solutions or false solutions like carbon trading that continue to let emitters emit and make climate change worse. And also on the agenda this year is um, the potential of getting a really good decision on loss and damage. And so loss and damage is impacts on communities that can't be mitigated or adapted to, that the damage of climate change goes far beyond what a community can cope with. So an example of that might be um, losing a keystone species um, that a community relies upon, or in the case of the communities that I come from or in the Pacific Islands um, where our land is lost to sea level rise and um, extreme weather event erosion. And so there needs to be finance there to help communities recover um, and to compensate for um, the impacts of climate change that are largely being driven by rich countries. And so we've seen a growing movement across many COPs in many decades um, for a meaningful um, movement to be made on loss and damage. And so this COP will be the COP where we hopefully get to have a major win, either in making it a permanent discussion point um, where countries have to make progress on it into the future at future negotiations, um, but also possibly in the form of a finance mechanism to help funnel funds towards loss and damage. Mm. 
And conversations, they have been happening. We've been covering them throughout the year as well um, on different platforms and different events. But has there been any meaningful progress from those nations that, you know, should be standing up and, and committing to this? Yeah, what we continue to see is wealthier countries being the break on climate action. Uh, it's largely to protect their profits and largely to maintain um, their power, especially for countries like New Zealand, Australia, Canada, America, um, who um, continue to also um, oppress Indigenous communities who've been speaking up about climate change, have been pushing back on extraction for hundreds of years now. And so there's ways in which they behave at the negotiations that are really in contradiction with the direction that we need to be going in in terms of meaningful reduction. Um, and so it's really going to be interesting to see if there's going to be any kind of shift on that. We are starting to see some glimmers of progress and kind of acknowledgement of the social justice elements of climate action, how important it is to make sure that no one's left behind, to make sure that Indigenous communities have a right to say what happens in terms of climate action and that kind of thing. Um, but it should have happened decades ago and it needs to be happening faster. And so it'll be interesting to see what particularly changes in government has meant for some of those big polluters like Australia. Is the world doing enough to address climate change? There are some communities who are doing amazingly. There are some countries who are doing amazingly, particularly Global South countries, um, where we are seeing those hampered efforts or those not fast enough efforts are definitely in the more affluent countries who, who want to continue to extract. Yeah. And is climate change denial hampering efforts? I think we've moved beyond climate change denial and more towards climate change complacency. So an embracing of a greenwashing of the current economic system and the current systems of decision making and that kind of thing to make them seem like they're taking action on climate change, but definitely um, not meaningful or in the form of climate justice and, and what we need to be achieved moving forward. Yeah. Where are those unmeaningful, you know, actions or non-actions coming from? Which communities or which countries? Or Can you give me an example of that? Particularly corporations, like the big fossil fuel corporations who are trying to continue to argue that they should be allowed to extract, you know, saying that natural gas is a transition fuel or something like that, when we know when you break the numbers down that's actually not the case. They just want to continue making money. Or in the case of car companies, you know, that everyone could have an electric car, but that would actually mean extracting so much mineral from the ground that that would destroy communities who live in the areas where those minerals are from and also continue to have negative impacts on our urban environment and our social well-being in terms of, you know, pedestrian-friendly communities and walkability and cyclability that have so many co-benefits as well, Yeah. And I guess that is also then, you know, governments as well, because, you know, New Zealand, for example, where I live, um, we are having these same sorts of talks as well around moving towards electric vehicles. Do you see that as a, an eff a, a effort that's, I guess, hampering progress in a way? 
Yeah, we have to be really careful. I guess about looking to the heart of solutions, and and that means we need to know really clearly what the origins of climate change were, and what kinds of communities were forced to pay the price for our current system. And so, particularly like Indigenous communities, people of colour, um, where our economy and our decision making, our obligation to take care of the environment as well as everyone around us, um, was violently eradicated by colonial governments, and that includes the New Zealand government. And so there are solutions that have been offered by the New Zealand government, particularly around the emissions trading scheme or around transitioning to electric vehicles that continue to kind of focus on individual solutions rather than, say, an all-out support for uh, public transport, you know, employing a whole lot of people to develop our inter-regional rail infrastructure or to um, restoring our forests and and planting out um, areas that need to be reforested instead of leaving them for pine forestry and that kind of thing. There's ways in which we can really look at the origins of climate change and see what those clear solutions are. And then we have governments like New Zealand, which um, seem to be listening more to corporations than frontline communities. That's Specific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Fa'afitai, telelava, tofa'asui fuo.